0: Alright, well, welcome again. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is on page 301. Page 301 in the Black Hardback Bibles around you. Uh, I invite you to grab it. We're going to read a good bit. So it'd be helpful if you follow along. As you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 19, there is a lie that is contained in pretty much every so-called Christian book in the bookstore. Most, most of them. And pretty much in every single preacher that's on TV. And the lie is that for those who obey Christ, for those who follow Christ faithfully, your life should just be peachy. It should go easy. And you really shouldn't face anything that difficult if you're obeying God, if you're following Him. It's a lie, though, because the reality of the Bible and our own experiences directly refute that. From the patriarchs to the prophets to Jesus to the apostles. Down through Christian history to today, discouragement and disappointment is no stranger to the lives of faithful Christians. Discouragement and disappointment is no stranger to the lives of faithful Christians. And yet the discouragement that we fall into isn't pointless. It's not something to be wasted. There are things that God wants to teach us through our discouragement and through our disappointment. See, discouragement and disappointment can be a fantastic teacher. Because if you will study your discouragement, what it is that discourages you, if you will study your disappointment, like what is the root of that which disappoints you? Very often you will find, not always, but very often you will find that what you're discouraged, what you're disappointed about, what the root of all that is, is what you value most in life. Often through discouragement and disappointment, like the disappointment of not having things turn out the way you wanted them to, the way you expected them to, through the disappointment of that happening, very often we're given lenses to see the reality of that which we truly love most, which we truly believe, that we truly rest in, and what our real treasure is. Disappointment and discouragement can reveal these things in our lives this is what first kings 19 is about we're going to see the prophet elijah in the valley of despair his spirit crushed begging god to die And it's shocking to us because chapter 18, if you, you know, just go back a few pages or you were here last week and heard John expound that chapter 18. This is Mount Carmel, right? This is him calling down fire from heaven. This is like one of the I mean, we are on the heels of one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. One of the most obvious examples of Yahweh just flexing just a little bit and just fire falling down and consuming things. But now, chapter 19, Elijah goes from this mountaintop experience to the valley of despair. And it gives us whiplash because it happens so fast. What in the world? But is it not pretty true in our own lives a lot of times? On chapter 18, that is where we want to live, right? We want to live on the mountaintop experience, but very often we find ourselves in chapter 19, the valley of despair. But again, that valley is very teaching. And it's in that valley that God does some of his greatest and most caring, though, listen, cutting heart surgery. To expose our false treasures. And it may be that the Lord wants to do some cutting in your own life this morning. And expose your false treasures. But my prayer this morning is that not only would that happen. so I think we all need that. Myself included. But that at the same time. We would leave this morning, even as we've been cut on a little bit, strangely warmed that we have a father in heaven who loves us enough to not leave us alone, that he will pursue us, he will work in us, he will change us, and he is willing to even break our fingers if necessary to get us to let go of that which would consume us. And that which we would actually choose if we knew everything that He does. And so that's my prayer. Heart surgery, an encouragement of a loving Father dedicated to our greatest good. And so what I want to do is I want to read chapter 19, kind of in full, get the story in our mind, and then we'll make a couple of observations and applications. All right? There'll be three of them. Pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Chapter 19, again, page 301. Starting in verse 1. Again, on the heels of chapter chapter 18. Here we go. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. This is like one hundred and fifty miles away. All right. He he got out of Dodge. So he left his servant there, but then he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying it is enough For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Horeb is just another word for Mount Sinai. So this is Moses, right? Where Moses was, Ten Commandments. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what? Are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, being the Lord, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, listen, he's still in the cave, right? He hadn't obeyed God. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, same thing. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, same thing. He hasn't learned anything. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the word said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahalo, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. He's putting him on the shelf. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. a, A remnant. This is the Old Testament version of I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand up yet. I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. We'll stop there. And so going back to verse one again, Elijah's just been a facilitator of a remarkable spectacle of the power of God on Mount Carmel. And then after the victory, he outruns a chariot to Jezreel and a messenger arrives from Queen Jezebel and basically says, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be like all those prophets you killed. And so on the heels of chapter 18, we expect Elijah to be like, are you kidding me? Did you not see what happened yesterday? I'll be right here. Come on. That's what we expect. But look at what we're told in verse 3. He was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life. This week as I was studying this, I, I, I mean, I was just sitting there and I was like, what is he afraid of? What did the writer mean by afraid here? Because it can't just be fear alone. Because, I mean, the day before, he just faced down all these prophets. He called fire down from heaven. He just stood face to face with King Ahab. Less than 24 hours before. So it can't just be that. And also, it can't just be like fear of dying because verse 4, he asked God to kill him. I don't want to live anymore. And so what's going on? I think what's going on is this. Elijah is afraid and runs away and wants to die because God didn't do what he wanted him to do. God didn't do what he expected. What he yearned for. And so this isn't just crave and fear. This is a fear of a dream he has had in his life, in his ministry, going unfulfilled. A dream that he has had being unfulfilled. And it crushes him. Just as maybe an unfulfilled dream in your life has. And I think there are two lessons right here in this part. And the first one's this. Okay, number one in your notes. Even people who believe in God's sovereignty can forget that God is God. Even people who believe in God's sovereignty can forget that God is God. And that he doesn't answer to us. And that his world is not formulaic. Verse 10 and verse 14 are clear what, what Elijah wants the most in the world. He longs for and he assumed that the northern kingdom, Israel, would repent and turn back to God after that great sign. Okay, and that is a good desire, right? Repent and turn back to the one true God. That is something that is right for him to long for. But when it doesn't happen and his dream is unfulfilled, he's crushed. And there's almost this sense of an unstated, the way he pouts a little bit, almost this sense of a like, what are you doing, God? And I wonder, is, is this is this us? Is this me? Is this you? Yearning for good things and working so hard to to control all the inputs into maybe your kids or your work or your relationships, believing another lie that if I can just get the right mix of all the inputs into my kids and co-workers, my friends, my marriage, my church, my work, if I can just get all the right inputs, then I will automatically get the desired outcome I want. Treating people like machines, formulas. Well, if I do this, this, and this, then automatically this, this, and this is going to happen. That's Elijah here. I, I did my part, God. I did what you called me to do. Why didn't you? Why didn't they repent? Why didn't they turn out? Like, why didn't this situation turn out the way I wanted it to, the way I expected it to? I did all the right inputs. Where is the outcome? James 5 says that Elijah is a man like us. And he absolutely is. Though he well understood the theological truth of the sovereignty of God, he forgot the practical reality that God is God. And he does what he deems best. He's not a formula to be manipulated. He's the God of the universe before whom we bow. And in whom we trust. But Elijah forgot. He forgot his own name because his name means my God is Yahweh. Yahweh. But all he could think about was that his dream, okay, what he longed for, it wasn't happening. His hopes and his dreams were unfulfilled and it crushed him to the point of wanting to die. Which brings us to our second truth this morning. And it's this, even people, so it begins the same way, even people who rightly reject obvious idolatry can be blind to their own idolatry. Even people who rightly reject obvious idolatry can be blind to their own idolatry. Okay, this is Elijah. His whole life he's rejected the obvious idolatry of worshiping bulls and phallic Tolls, all right, Baal and Asherah. He has rejected that his whole life. In chapter 18, he calls down fire from heaven, destroys the altar, slaughters 450 prophets of Baal. So he's rejected that. But now he's succumbed to the exact same sin, just wearing different clothes. Because his is the idol. His whole hope was set on things going the way he wanted them to. His happiness was dictated. His joy was dictated by that. And when it didn't happen, verse 4. He's like, kill me, God. I don't want to live anymore. My idol has been crushed. And that's what I lived for. And so I want you to see very carefully here what Elijah craves for Israel to repent and turn back to the one true God. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. My friends, what we've got to understand is that this is how idolatry usually happens. For example, we will take good things like family, spouses, kids, sex, food, drink, jobs, money, school, sports possessions experiences reputation good things and elevate them to a godlike status and so it goes from being something that the lord gives to functioning as a substitute lord in our life a god replacement in our life and he becomes the most important thing Experience, person, possession, achievement that we have in our whole lives and it becomes preeminent in our lives and we worship it and we make sacrifices for it and to it. We'll sacrifice our time, we'll sacrifice our health, we'll sacrifice our money. We'll say no to really good things because it might interfere with our worship of this thing. And again, it usually starts with good things. In Middle Tennessee, the most prominent ones I see as I look around are the idolization of a standard of living. and the entitlement that comes with that. It's how it's often expressed is through entitlement. and the idolization of children and family again, a good thing, but getting elevated to like a godlike status. and now we're idolaters. And we'll pawn it off as like a respectable thing. I'm, I'm about my family. I'm about my kids. But we've turned them into idols. And our happiness is set in what they do. And then there's this one. And I can speak to this one because I was this one. Sports. I mean, the whole modern-day phenomenon, an absolutely money-making machine of travel sports is built off of and promotes further idolatry. I mean, straight up, your kid doesn't need to be playing travel sports when he's seven. He's not going to go pro. He's not going to bankroll your retirement. I mean, you do realize that you have more of a likelihood of being struck by lightning while being bitten by a shark than you do to make millions and millions of dollars in professional sports. And I'm not saying there's never a place for travel sports. Don't don't mishear me I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you are constantly missing the worship of God with the family of God for travel athletics, what are you worshiping? What does your life say? Your time say? Your money say you're worshiping? What are you making sacrifices for? And then also, what are you teaching your kids to worship and value most? You're like, well, they might get a scholarship. Well, now all you've done is shifted the idol from sports to money. And I get it. I've been there. Sarah and I earned scholarships. If you want to be, I mean, if you want to be successful at anything, it takes hard work. It takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes hard work. Lots of it. But there are some things you just don't sacrifice. And so, again, parents, if you allow your kids to constantly, constantly be absent from the weekly gathering of the church, except where it conveniently fits into your sports calendar, Listen to me, you you might not be saying it verbally with your mouth, but you are screaming it practically with your life. There are other things in life more important than Jesus. And I know none of you want to teach your kid that, but that's what you're doing. You're training your child that Jesus is like an optional package on a new car. Might be nice, but we can live without it. And so my plea to you, those of you who have parents that may. Don't train them that way. Instead, train them up in the Lord so that when they are old, they might not depart from him. Train them that Sunday is the Lord's day, not our day. And then outside of rare circumstances, there's going to be some circumstances, but outside of that, it is just a given non-negotiable that we are going to obey the scriptures and assemble together weekly for the worship of King Jesus and receive the preached word. Teach your kids that... We, will, we as a family will forsake sports. We will forsake activities. But we will, Hebrews 10, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Friends, there is a cumulative effect to what happens in here. Drip, 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 drip for years. Like water on a rock will change that rock. And I pick on sports because, one, it's so prevalent. Two, it was me. Until college, when God, in His grace and love, broke me and woke me up. I'm going to say that again God, in His grace and love, broke me. Painful. Love did that, grace did that. But that wasn't the end of my idolatry problems. Because idolatry is like one of those crazy birthday candles that blows out and just keeps reigniting. That's idolatry. It is like a reincarnating beast that takes different forms. And so over the next few years, you know, i am beat this idolatry, that's great. A subtle idolatry snuck into my life. And maybe it's in your life as well. And it was an idolatry that I was blind to, and it remained hidden because it was was safe and it was secure and it was never threatened until Eden was born. And then it came to light. And it was just this idol of the perfect Christian family with just... You know, life of relative ease, relative comfort and harmony, minimal suffering, minimal difficulty, minimal stress, and with well-behaved kids who excel in everything they do, and they get good grades, and they get into a good college, and they get a good job, and they marry a great husband, and they have this perfect little family, and it's just the most godly family you've ever seen, right? All good things, nothing wrong with that, except when they become our idol. And it had become like what I lived for. And then Eden came along and God exposed me. Is that really what life's all about, Joe? How shallow are you? What if they don't excel at everything? What if my kids struggle to walk and talk and run and jump? What if they never do these things? Can't do these things. What if they don't get good grades? What if reading is tough for them? What if they can't read? What if they don't get a job? Can't live on their own, but live with Sarah and I for the rest of our life. Meaning we can't travel and and, and do the things in the future that we've always dreamed of. Now, a lot of that's not even true. Hear me. When Eden was diagnosed with Down syndrome, I had no clue about like what it was. I, I, did, I didn't know how ignorant and just plain wrong I was about the capabilities of people with Down syndrome. Eden can already read better in first grade than I probably did in the third grade. And I'm, I, that's not for laughs. That's a fact. You're down here singing. She's reading and singing. But still, that, that's how I received the diagnosis, okay? That's how I received it. And God used it to work in my life. Because as I sat up in the hospital all night, the night after her diagnose, she was diagnosed as like probably going to have that. It wasn't the final official thing. It was the day before. And as I sat up in the hospital all night long with all these thoughts, I was just talking to you, know, you're re- running through my head, And just being completely selfish and thinking only about what this meant for my life. Not getting, not not, shamefully, not even thinking about the life of my child who was about to be fighting for her life. Just having a pity party because I wanted my old life back. And as I sat there doing that, God was so kind to me. In His providence, He had had me bring a book with me. And I opened that book up. And within the first couple of pages, I started reading and I realized what I wanted wasn't my old life back. What I wanted were my idols back because they had been taken away from me. They were unfulfilled. And I wanted my idols back. I craved my idols back. That was what was hurting me. I wasn't even thinking about my daughter. I was thinking about me. I was just like Elijah. And so I began then, something that continues to today, like just continually repenting. Like I repented then, I asked God to forgive me because I loved my idols more than I loved Him. And I trusted in them for joy more than I trusted in Him. And it's not just like a one-time thing of repentance. This is something that you have to go back to all the time. Because it resurrects. It won't be extinguished. That was me. What about you? What are your idols? I can ask that because every single one of us has them. It's not a question of if. What is it? What are they? As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. What are yours? Study your disappointments. Study your discouragement. Study your unfulfilled dreams. Those hopes and treasures you've never obtained, though you always wanted them, or maybe you had them or almost had them, only to see them slip away between your fingers before your very eyes. What do they teach you? What do they show you about yourself? And fight them. Fight them. Friends, the Lord Jesus knew the pain and the joy of this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus sweated drops of blood praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Do you understand that Jesus was fighting idolatry there? And winning. Not my will. But your will. Friends, that's the fight not my will your will god and so fight because idols lie they overpromise they underdeliver they will never give you what you want they will never satisfy you ecclesiastes 3 god has put eternity into our hearts and so the only thing that will ever satisfy us fully is the god of eternity that's the whole reason that God wars against our idolatries. And won't leave us alone in them and is willing to break our fingers. He will come after us because he knows that these idols will only rob us. Because only the glory of God can enthrall us forever. And so number three then. God's warring against our idols Is born out of his omniscient love for us. God's warring against your idols, my idols, our idols is born out of. His omniscient love. For us, for me, for you. And war, he will. In the lives of those that he loves, war he will out of love for you. We're back at Elijah, right? He's forgotten that God's God. He succumbed to idolatry, but God pursues him. He provides food for him, he provides strength for him to travel to. Mount Oreb, again, which is just Mount Sinai, the place where Moses saw the glory of the Lord and the Ten Commandments were given to him. And notice how God wars against Elijah's idol here. He takes him to Mount Oreb and first he comes in a whirlwind. He comes in a mighty wind like this is like amazing power. This is not on the whatever the tornado scale is, F1, F2, F3, F4, F5. This is like F78, The rocks are breaking apart. The mountain is crumbling. It just says God's not in that. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. What's the picture then? The picture is like, this is how Elijah wanted God to work in in the northern kingdom by mighty spectacles of power. And it didn't happen. Like he wasn't doing that anymore. They did not repent. And so God's saying, Elijah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to work like that. What I'm going to do now, I'm, I'm not in the wind, I'm not in the fire, I'm not in the earthquake. This time I'm going to work through a whisper, through less visible means to accomplish my purposes. And so verse 15 and the following, God sends him back to Syria. What? And he says, this is how it's going to go, Elijah. It's not going to happen the way you want. Not doing that. This is going to happen through a Syrian pagan king. And it's also going to happen through another king in Israel. And it's also going to happen not through you, not through your ministry, but through the ministry of another, Elisha. Very reminiscent of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Moses, I want you to look out there. Do you see the promised land? Good. You're not going in. See, what Moses wanted more than anything was to enter the promised land. What Elijah wanted more than anything was for Israel to repent through his own powerful working. But God says, no. No. I love you too much to give you your idols that will consume you. That will drive you to think you don't need me anymore. And will lead you to destruction. No. Instead, out of my love for you, I will work to accomplish in you what you would actually want me to do. If you knew everything that I do. If you were omniscient like I am. And so the call to us then, all right, don't think about other people, the call to meet like your own head is to trust Him and obey Him. His commands are for our ultimate joy. And so friends, when that still small voice comes to you through circumstances or the impression of the Holy Spirit and it's saying no to your idols, you know that that's the voice of the Lord because He's the only one who works like that. Nobody does that. When you hear the voice that says, oh, "You, you really ought to have whatever you want," you you should have that. You should. That voice comes with a hiss. And then what happens next in the story is Elijah fades from the scene. He never goes to Syria like he was told. He never anoints a king in Israel like he was told. And he only begrudgingly seeks out Elisha and doesn't anoint him. He tries to take him on as like his assistant. Elijah doesn't finish well. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, God brings this discouraged and idolatrous servant home to heaven. And he gets to heaven and I think he gets it. I think he gets it. I think he realizes why God said no to his every desire. Everything he ever wanted. Because there in heaven, I think think he sees that it wasn't enough for just the northern kingdom to turn from their idolatry and acknowledge the one true God. No, God was working so that Men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language would turn to God through Christ. And so, there in heaven, I think he gets it and it all makes sense now. And I think that's very well why, at least part of the reason why Elijah shows up in Luke 9. Flip there real quick. Luke 9. It's page 867 in the Black Hardback Bibles. Luke 9, verse 28. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Little word, Exodus. Talking, Jesus is going to repeat the Exodus. He's going to make a way for his people to be rescued. And so what's going on is almost like God in his kindness and grace is saying, Elijah, you wouldn't come out of the cave and see my glory on Mount Ora. But now I want you to go down to another mount and I want to, you to see my glory. I want to show you 2nd Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because that's what I've been up to this whole time, dear child. That's what I was doing. So, friends, the lesson for us is that God is good and He's working for His glory and our good all the time. All the time. He's working for your joy, for your good, even when you cannot perceive it, and even when you've ceased to be able to feel anything. He does this because He's good and because He's loving. And so he wars against our idolatries, and he prunes us. Jesus calls the Father, Divine the Dresser, and he prunes us to grow, to grow us. And you know this: pruning requires, requires cutting. Sometimes cutting way back. Sometimes very painful something that sometimes leaves a wound it's a wound of grace a wound to heal you just like those of you who've had open heart surgery they had to break open your sternum to heal your heart they had to cut you to heal you and it's the same with god and his children But all of these wounds and all of these cuts and all of these breaks are wounds of grace. He loves you too much to leave you alone. And he is willing to break your fingers. Break them. To get you to let go of what's killing you. And beyond that, Jesus was willing to be broken for you. The very one that we've sinned against, the very one that we've turned away from and given our love and our devotion and our worship to something else other than Him, say, I love this more than you, the very one that we've done that to, took our place. He paid for our idolatry, He paid for our sin. He took and suffered. The wrath of God that we completely and absolutely deserve. He stepped in and was our substitute. You know, all of that that we deserve was diverted from us and it was put on him. He took our imperfections and then he gave us his perfections. He took our unholiness and he gave us his Holiness. And so now when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sins. He doesn't see us in our idolatries anymore. He doesn't see us in our rebellion anymore. He sees us clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. Your friends, that's how much He loves you. Don't think that He will use you as His servant and just leave you to writhe in your disappointments No, He has a plan for your everlasting joy. Believe that and press on. Because there's coming a day as we endure where we too will see Jesus face to face. We'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, true, glorious understanding will come. So like the old spiritual says, we'll understand it. Oh, by and by. Press on. Let's pray. Father, truly, your ways are higher than ours. Truly, we fumble around in the dark. When you were sovereign and almighty and working everything to the good of those who love you even our pain, even our hurts, in the midst of that, you are are drawing us to yourself. Some of us who who are not your children, you're drawing and saying, weary sinner, come home. And those of us who are yours, you're drawing us to make yourself our closest companion. And wean us from those things that would rob us. And so Father, in these moments and in this week, open our eyes to those things, those false functional saviors, those God replacements that perhaps we have turned to. Father, help us to not see good things now as bad things, but to see them as what they are, things. Things. And to see you as what you are. God. Almighty. Who holds us fast. And walks with us. And pursues us. And will cut us to heal us. In kindness and grace. That's who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.